How could a steamy affair full of secrets possibly go wrong? If it's part of a Laura Lippman novel, it will happen in a juicy, twisted, unexpected way. Laura Lippman will be here to talk about her latest suspense novel, Sunburn. What's going on in romance fiction this season? My colleague Tina Jordan joins us to talk about the latest in love. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Laura Littman joins us now from New Orleans to talk about her latest novel, Sunburn. Laura, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So set us up here with the premise of this novel. The easiest way to describe it is imagine the postman always rings twice, except it's 1995, and the stranger passing through town is a woman instead of a man, and she's a woman who has just left her husband and young daughter on a beach vacation with no explanation and just the most cursory of notes. And how did you come up with that setup? You know, I I can't come up with the exact moment, which bugs me, because I usually sort of have that origin story of my novels. I know that I had always thought that the idea at the heart of Ann Tyler's Ladder of Years, a novel that happened to be published in 1995, was a very dark idea, although she played it for great comic and human effect, and that was the story of a woman who got so disgusted with her family that she just stood up and left them at the beach and went off and found a new life. And I've always loved James Cain. And I know that at some point in the fall of 2015, I was thinking about Cain a lot. I used Postman for a class that I taught at something known as Mystery Writers of America University here in New Orleans, as a matter of fact. And it's sort of like this mashup just happened. I was like, well, wait a minute. What if, you know, the big question that novelists always ask themselves, what if a woman walked away from her family, but it was a noir idea, and she stops in a small town, and she meets a man, and everything transpires from there. I'm interested in that year, 1995, because there's sort of been this ongoing question for many novelists about, do you set your novel sort of before cell phones, after cell phones, before the internet, after the internet? And obviously you have that Ann Tyler 1995 reason, but but was the technology part of it? I think the technology was a big part of it. I wanted to find what I called in my head, the last good year to disappear, And I was thinking about my own relationship with technology. In 1995, I don't think I have a cell phone. If I do, you know, it's a clunky flip phone with no capacities of the phones we have now. And I'm going on the Internet at the time. There's no Google. I I think that's probably a revelation to some people that there was ever a pre-Google world. Mm -hmm. But in 1995, if you could get on this thing called the Internet, it, it felt like you were almost in some sort of virtual reality game, and you're like, I'm here. Is anyone else there? You know, I connected on an external modem. You know, there were basically some message boards on AOL that people talked about crime fiction in, and that was the extent of it. <laughs> now yeah. you get on, and it's like, I'm here, and oh, God, there are too many <laughs> other people here, too. <laughs> Everybody's here. I mean, you're so attached now. It was a different time, and I felt that it was kind of serendipitous that I had started this book when I did, because after the events of 2016, I think it's really hard to write about contemporary times right now. 
because it's hard to imagine a novel in which people just aren't sitting around talking all the time about the news. And so I felt a great relief when I realized that I had, by accident, by the sheerest accident, allowed myself to live in the past through most of 2016 and into 2017. Was that restful? It was so restful. <laughs> I, and by the way, the next novel I started was set in 1966. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to be like in the 18th century soon, Laura. Yeah, <laughs> There's going right. to be corsets and stuff. Um, <laughs> well, the other influence you mentioned was, of course, uh, an, an era, 1940s noir. What was the appeal of that time and, and that particular form for you? I've just always loved Kane, and it was actually a profound disappointment to me when I started writing crime fiction that I wasn't as hard-boiled as I hoped I was going to be. I thought I was going to be a much tougher dame. (laughs) And when I started, I wasn't. There was almost this kind of rueful optimism that crept into my work and I think is more reflective of my worldview. But I've always liked noir, and I've always felt that the best noir stories are simply stories about people just like ourselves who cross a big line. Mm -hmm. They want the things that everybody wants. You know, they want love, they want money, they want stability, they want success. But there comes a moment in which, in most noir stories, the people decide, okay, I, I will kill for that if I have to. And I've always been attracted to that idea, and I think I was just waiting for the right story to explore that idea. It's interesting that you have heart because you were a hardened journalist before you were a novelist. I'm curious, was that transition a difficult one? It was almost too easy for me. You know, at the time, sometimes people would say, didn't it make your bosses nervous because you were a novelist and there's always been this concern about fabricators in newsrooms? And I would say, no, no, the people who are actually writing novels are the safe ones because they have a really <laughs> clear idea about what what's fiction and what's not fiction. And the people who write fiction for newspapers write very bad, shoddy fiction that takes advantage of the fact that people think it's true. So they get away with these implausibilities and, you know, incredible stories. I, I really liked my life in newspaper. I had 20 years of which 19 were great. But I always wanted to be a novelist. I went to work at newspapers because that was a job where you could get paid to write. And I'm really proud of the fact that I supported myself as a writer from the age of 22 on. I felt like that was pretty much a dream realized right there. But when fortune smiled on me and I was able to become a full-time novelist, I was aware that it was pretty much the greatest thing that had ever happened to me, and I try to remember that every day. Did it change the way you wrote fiction to kind of leave that real-world reporting behind? It did. That's a great question. The first thing, I mean, the, the first real loss that I registered is when your day job is in a newspaper, you are surrounded by experts. Any question, I had a colleague who could answer it for me very quickly, and I felt I was very much immersed in everything about the city of Baltimore day to day. I knew all of its systems, how everything worked. Now, it's been 17 years now since I left my job, and I don't feel that connection to Baltimore anymore. I now have more of a neighborhood connection. I know what's going on with, you know, people who live near me and my kids' school and the little soap operas of South Baltimore, but I don't 
feel as plugged into the city at large. And I, I kind of miss that. It's, mm-hmm. it's much harder to do outside of a newsroom. But at the same time, once I left the newsroom, it doesn't make any sense. It's a paradox. When I had the day job, I should have been more inventive and risk-taking with my fiction. But for some reason, it was when I left the day job and mm-hmm. I had no safety net, you know, no more health insurance, you know, being paid by someone else, no pension. I was willing to take much bigger risk with my books, and that has continued. You write both books within series and standalone novels. And I'm curious what the difference is and if you feel a, a sort of greater freedom when, you're, when you don't have to deal with that sort of same set of characters and, and, and framework. There's definitely a difference. And when you're writing a long-running series, you almost have to think of each book as a 90,000-word chapter. Mm -hmm. And if you give your character an experience that would just hollow her out, she's done. So there's, there's a sense that you're holding back in a little ways, you know, that there can be enormous events and things can happen, but not too much Right. the character's going to return. And it's nice in some ways returning to the known world of Tess Monaghan where so much has been established, but then it's like, well, how, to make, how do you make it fresh? How do you make it new? Uh, one of my big concerns as a woman and a reader is you have to find this way in suspense novels to make them suspenseful without your characters being stupid. Right. <laughs> you know, I told like, why would she do that? Right. How so could she be tricked again? <laughs> yes. So it, it's sort of a, that challenge of showing how smart people can still make mistakes, which I think is pretty true to life as I know it. But it is exhilarating to head into the new world of a standalone, a one-off, where nothing has been established and. I get to do whatever I want to do and play around with the characters. And, you know, I don't have any established realities that I have to deal with. I like both. Uh, The series has actually become harder to write, in part because I had to go and be so clever and give my series character a small child. And it makes it much harder to figure out how to create stories about this smart, capable woman she would never put herself in danger now, not knowingly. Right. And that's made it so much tougher to write. I love that idea about, you know, having to hold back a little bit, right? Because you can't wipe out your character completely and sort of, you know, leave her questioning her entire existence. It's kind of like the James Bond thing, right? Where how do you keep elevating the evil and then at the same time keep completely demoralizing and have the the character question his very existence and then come back for another episode? It's it's a really important question, and I think a lot of series writers should be examining it because however much the audience may have an insatiable appetite for excitement and ever higher stakes, as you mentioned, killing other people is something profound that would change you forever. I made a conscious decision in the Tess Monaghan series to wait a very long time before she killed anyone. Mm-hmm. And it was book number seven. And I've now written five more books since then about her. And she thinks about it and she's affected by it. And that's the only time she's done it. And I felt like that was important because otherwise, how would your character not have some sort of complete breakdown 
if they're just routinely having to kill people as part of their job. Do you see that when you read other crime novels? Does it seem that other novelists are sort of taking that into consideration, the psychological effects? I think more and more, and I think that was something that I saw in what I always call my generation, although we are of varying age of crime writers. I know that Dennis Wahane was very concerned with it, with the Patrick and Angie books, and wanted them to be true to life. My friend George Pelicanos made sure that he wrote these very short-lived series. He would write four or five books about one character, and you would definitely see the toll that violence took on his characters. His first series... (laughs) The character starts off as a sort of responsible middle-class businessman, and by the time George is finished with him, you know, he's an alcoholic who I think was literally lying in the gutter. And I really respected those choices. And I, you know, it's a delicate thing. There's some series, and I would never name names, but they go on too long. Mm-hmm. And you start trying to do the math of how old is this character <laughs> now? Right. This is a kind of grand question, and I'm sure you get it asked all the time, but what do you think it is about sort of the way that crime fiction asks readers to think about the kind of extremes of the human condition that that appeals to us? Why do we want to go there to, you know, see people killed or, or to kill or to sort of contemplate that darkness? First of all, I think fiction is the safe place where we can contemplate those ideas. Coming from a newspaper background, I became aware that When we read a story in our newspaper or hear one on the radio or on television about a crime in our neighborhood, whether we admit it to ourselves or not, our instinct is to disengage, is to find that moment at which we can assure ourselves, oh, but that wouldn't happen to me. I happen to live in a neighborhood in South Baltimore where there is street crime, and these are very real considerations. And I find myself asking those questions, and I think it's human and probably part of probably a necessary mechanism to survive to try to figure out why certain things won't happen to you if you're careful. But fiction breaks that down, and the best crime fiction allows people to think, well, what would I do? And I'm not so much interested in the criminals themselves. I'm interested in their loved ones, their near and dear. Especially, what would you do as a parent if you believed that your child had committed a crime? What would you do as a parent to protect your child? What would you do if you thought your husband had done something that he can't tell you about but might have enormous ramifications for your family? You know, how would you feel as a victim of sexual assault? Would you want revenge? Would you be defeated by it? What would be your... And and people reading novels can be relaxed enough to open themselves up and have, have empathy and to see how there are very few villains in our world. There are some. There are definitely some. But there are fewer villains than we'd like. You know, I always remind people that Thomas Harris's great creation, Hannibal Lecter, that's a Baltimore character. But when I'm sitting in my house in Baltimore, I'm not worried about Hannibal Lecter. There's not a brilliant serial killer psychiatrist roaming the streets of my city intent on you know, turning the citizens into gourmet meals. But there are young men having bad days who might have a gun on them. You know, it is reasonable to believe that 
a person in my city could yell at a kid for throwing trash in the gutter and that kid's having a bad day and unfortunately for the person who yelled at him, he's got a gun. And I'm interested in those stories and I feel like fiction is one of the best places to tell them. What's the pleasure for you in in telling those stories? You know, this is going to sound so hokey, Freudian, dime store analysis. I had a really bad speech impediment as a kid. And nobody understood a word I was saying except my older sister. And my mother took me to a pediatrician who said, they've developed a secret language. And if you just enlarge a nursery school, the other kids will laugh at her. And then she'll have to talk like the other kids. And so it kind of went according to plan. She Mm -hmm. sent me to nursery school. The other kids laughed at me. I couldn't speak correctly. I had a problem. I didn't breathe right. I couldn't say certain letters. And I had to have like a year of speech therapy. And I always felt like I got all these stories backed up. There's like, you know, there's this, I, I think as human beings, we want to tell stories, to hold other people's interests, to get people to pay attention. It's like, you know, that campfire instinct. You know, we're going to sit here. It's my turn to tell a story. Can I keep your attention? And can I make you care about the things that I care about? You know, there's so many issues that I care about. And if I went and stood on a soapbox on the corner and wanted to talk about feminism or sexual assault, no one would listen. Mm-hmm. But in a novel, you can be almost subversive about getting messages across. Well, Laura, you are lovely to listen to now, and people are paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This is a delight. Laura Lippman's latest novel is called Sunburn, and it's got a rave review in this week's book review. Laura, thanks again. Thank you. Tina Jordan, an editor at The Book Review, joins us now to talk about the world of romance novels. Tina, thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. We have introduced in this week's issue a new romance column, Love Notes. And I'm curious to, to sort of get your sense of, of why now? I mean, why, why should we be covering romance? You know, romance novels are a $1 billion industry. They're more than half of all mass market paperbacks sold. There are really good romance novels, just like there are really good literary novels, really good thrillers, really good mysteries. And people like you and me read romance novels. I think they get a lot of unfair press. Let Mm -hmm. me put it that way. I was surprised by one other statistic, which was that one-third of all fiction books sold in this country are romance. Right. Now it's not a really recent development. But one of the aspects, I think, is that a lot of romance novels are ebook. They're ebook and they're self-published. This leads to a whole other conversation, but when somebody self-publishes a book, of course, they have agency over their characters mm-hmm. and their plots. And the big romance publishers were a little slow to embrace diversity. And a lot of these writers just went out on their own and published their own. And in fact, the world of romance self-publishing is far more diverse than the 
romance world of traditional publishers. Are the traditional publishers now catching up or they're, trying to? They're definitely trying to catch up. Mm-hmm. I know you're aware of a study that the bookstore The Ripped Bodice, which is an L.A. romance bookstore, did last year, in which they looked at every book published in 2016 by the major publishers. Mm-hmm. And they found, and this is still sort of appalling, that only seven out of every 100 books were by people of color. Hmm. As deplorable as that stat sounds, it is getting better. I think it I think it speaks to a lack of diversity behind the scenes, you know, in the actual publishing world, too. When you ask romance editors what makes them decide to buy a book, they imagine people reading it, their friends, their family, their aunt, their mother. And if you've got largely white hetero editors, you're Mm going to get largely white hetero books. I'm interested in other aspects, too, in terms of the diversity of romance. Is romance fiction an American phenomenon? I mean, there's a British tradition. Oh, very much a British tradition. And, you know, I think they sort of have dovetailed now. But I think it was much more robust in Britain than it was in this country for a while. I think it's Boone and Mills is the name of the British Uh company, which is sort of the British Harlequin. Are there Chinese romances? Are there romances in India or elsewhere in Europe? There are romances elsewhere. I actually know less about the ones like in China. I know they exist, the Chinese and Korean and Japanese one. I know less about those. Mm -hmm. I'd like to learn more. I'm totally fascinated by that. All right. In a future podcast episode, the other question I had about diversity was diversity within the genre in the same way that literary fiction isn't a monolithic genre, quote unquote. Right. Romance isn't either. No, it's not. And you can divide romance into these basic subgenres, which are contemporary, historical, suspense, paranormal, inspirational, and erotic. But within each one of those, like the number of sub-subgenres in, is insane. I mean, you want to read a chaste Amish romance novel, done. You want to read a romance novel about the NASCAR scene, done. Like, you want to read shapeshifter paranormal romances, done. I'm stunned at how numerous and how specific these sub-sub-genres are. And what about the age of romance readers? The stereotype would probably be like, oh, it's a lonely woman in her 50s or 60s. Right. Right. Or long married, long suffering. But that's not true either. It's not true. I I don't want to be pinned down on the average income, but it's actually quite high. Mm -hmm. It's women in their 30s through their 50s, although now romance publishers are making this concentrated effort to bring in younger readers. Yeah, I was going to say, like, what's the millennial romance? It's called new adult. That's Mm -hmm. the subgenre, and it's very hot. (laughs) That's kind of like mixing slight erotica, like sort of E.L. James stuff with YA with romance. Right, exactly. And... It's funny you mention E.L. James because the romance folks will get all up in arms if you mention her because people always say, oh, she's Gateway. She's the one that sparked the, you know, the whole interest. But that's So for people who, listeners who don't know E.L. James, she is the Fifty Shades of Grey author. Right. And it's various Yes. And so she's, I won't say she's not liked, but she's much discussed in romance circles. Mm -hmm. And, of course, one of the main things is, As our columnist noted in the paper this week, consent is a mainstay of romance novels. Women are empowered. It's what the woman wants. And, of course, that's not necessarily what's in E.L. James. Well, one of the things that's interesting is, you know, you often hear men when talking about pornography say, well, what women have instead of pornography is romance novels. That, to me, feels 
like a very chauvinistic way of characterizing. Oh, absolutely. Romance novels increasingly are becoming political. Mm -hmm. They're becoming feminist. They're celebrating the fact that women want things. The arc of a romance novel is the heroine figuring out what she wants and the guy fitting into that, not the reverse. Like, it's her decision. Mm -hmm. I kind of love that. (laughs) Do romances always have happy endings? They don't. They don't. I mean, in general, they do, yes. But I have read romance novels where the woman decides her career is more important and walks away. And it's a happy ending, but they don't get together. What's the most exciting trend in romance to your mind? Is it the diversity? I think it's the diversity. I think it's that everybody has a seat at the table now. You're seeing not just African-American writers, but so many talented Indian-American writers. And everybody is who used to have to self-publish is getting a publishing deal. All right, then. Well, that's happy news for romance readers and perhaps for other readers who have possibly written off romance. Maybe it's time to open up that door. Tina, thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Alexander Alter joins us now with some news from the publishing world. Alexander, hi. Hi, Pamela. So there's some good news from the kids' world. Yes, the children's book sector of the publishing industry continues to be, I think, one of the most exciting areas where you're seeing— it's like the California publishing. You know, like everyone's happy, everyone's friendly. Yeah, and then they're always on the cutting edge of the culture. Exactly. (laughs) And they're growing. I mean, they're adding imprints and looking for new voices. So the exciting thing that's happened recently is there have been a couple of new imprints announced. One is Kwame Alexander's new imprint, Versify, which is at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And that's his publisher, of course. And he's a very interesting author. You know, he is kind of an evangelist for reading. He writes these poetry-inflected novels for young readers that sort of center on sports and hip-hop. And so he really engages them in, you know, areas that they're already interested in. And he's known for sort of converting reluctant readers into avid readers. So he's kind of bringing his I guess, offbeat sensibility to the publishing industry. And he's told me that he's looking for stuff that other publishers might not take a chance on. So it'll be quite interesting to see what kind of innovative narratives he comes up with. He's kind of an amazing, inspirational guy, right? Because it took him a long time for him to break into publishing himself, right? It's true. I was really, you know, interested to hear his backstory, how he was selling poetry on his own, kind of going around to coffee shops and selling his self-published poetry for $10. And then when he came up with the idea for The Crossover, which is his first breakout book, he was rejected by 22 publishers before it finally got published. It became a bestseller. It won the Newbery Medal in 2015. And he's sort of, you know, just taken off from there. You know, those those stories of like rejected by 22 publishers are so much more fun than the, you know, hot bidding war between eight publishers. stories, I have to say. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, there's something sort of inspiring, I guess, about somebody who was determined, and he was about to self-publish it, actually, he said, before he got the offer from Houghton Mifflin. So his new imprint, Versify, it's launching in the spring of 2019, and he already has some very interesting authors lined up. He's publishing a Holocaust novel in verse. It's a Mm -hmm. YA Holocaust novel by Kip Wilson, and it tells the true story of a Nazi resistance leader. He's also signed up a bilingual picture book series by Raul Gonzalez, who publishes as Raul III. 
and it's sort of Richard Scarry-esque, so that, that sounds extremely fun. Raul III, I think that's like my favorite pen name. I the, like it a lot. Yes. Yeah, it sounds like it's from The Princess Bride. And um, he's publishing a novel by Lamar Giles, and it's called The Last, Last Day of Summer. It's kind of a Phantom Tollbooth-inspired middle-grade fantasy. It's an interesting moment for poetry because poetry sales, according to Publishers Weekly, were up. You know, it's Doubled. such an interesting moment for poetry, and I think a lot of it is driven by young readers. You have other authors like Jacqueline Woodson, whose memoir Brown Girl Dreaming was written in free verse, and Ellen Hopkins, who's a very, very popular uh, best-selling YA author who writes about really tough issues in, in verse. And I think it's a very accessible kind of way for young readers to, you know, approach difficult subjects. And, of course, there's all the Instagram poets who are kind of reaching the 20-somethings, 30-somethings. It's it's fascinating that young readers are really driving these poetry sales and revival. such an emotional form. Exactly. I was interested, too, that Kwame would start an imprint because it seems like a lot of kids' book authors are sort of going this route. Mm -hmm. They become engaged with the whole community, and they become these sort of evangelists for literacy, so that it makes sense for them to kind of switch gears and become entrepreneurs slash publishers themselves. So he's joining others like James Patterson and Rick Riordan and Christopher Myers, who have all started imprints recently. I think that for so many authors, too, there's a sense of—there's that fear that so that many people— feel right now, which is like, are young people going to continue to read? There are so many other distractions exactly. and media out there. Of course, the internet, this little thing that sometimes <laughs> <laughs> grabs people's attention. And so I think they, 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 they want to see, they hope to see that next generation being really inspired by words in the way that they were. With the breakout success of, you know, certain YA or middle grade series like Harry Potter or Twilight or any of those ones that became kind of cultural touchstones, it brings in a whole wave of, of a new generation of readers. Because once you become obsessed in that way with a book, you know, you're not going to you're not going to stop reading after that. You're going to look for the next thing. And so I think that's what a lot of these authors are hoping to do when they start imprints. The other exciting new imprint that was just announced this week is that Penguin Young Readers. And this is an imprint called Coquila that focuses on diverse books for children and young adults. And it's being launched by Namrata Tripathi, who was previously the editorial director at Dial Books for Young Readers. So she is really looking for kind of voices from the cultural margins. It's going to be kind of focused on international stories. And she's got a really interesting lineup of authors already. They're launching in the summer of 2019. So she has already signed up books by Nyla Magruder, Ziki Pena, John Corey Whaley, Shireen Handy, Pablo Cartea. And she, in the past at Dial Books, she's come up with some really interesting works. She edited Mama's Nightingale by Edward Stanticat, and she worked on Juno Diaz's forthcoming debut picture book, Islandborn, which we read about when they announced it. And she also worked with John Corey Whaley on his book, Highly Illogical Behavior, and The Night Diary by Vera Haranandani, which looks like a very interesting book. So it'll be great to see what kind of things she comes up with there. And she's, I think, going to shape a whole new generation of authors and hopefully readers as well. Well, that's all good news. We yes, like good it. good news this week. Alexander, thank you. Thanks so much. Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, we've got Greg Coles, John Williams, and Livia Garke. Hi, guys. Hi. Hey, all right, Livia, let's start with you. Oh, wow. Shocking. Um, uh, I am reading 
Here in Berlin um, by Christina Garcia, which was actually reviewed um, in TBR by Wendy Lesser. It's a book about an unnamed Cuban-American visitor. She's called the visitor in the book who goes to Berlin to sort of escape the her life. She's twice divorced, hates her mother and her kids, you know, are sort of away. And she tries to investigate and rebuild this narrative of, of Berlin in sort of how they deal with the memories of World War II. And, and so the entire story is told from the perspective of other people, these people that she meets, you know, in the park, at the aquarium, at the zoo. I'm not finished with it, but it's been really enjoyable. And it actually reminds me of Teju Cole's Open City. Uh, there's a part in the book in Open City where Julius, the main character, goes to Brussels. And for me, this book is sort of what that section would look like if it were an entire novel, um, because it's sort of thinks about the idea of the flaneur and building your identity by being in the background, which is just a topic that I'm personally interested in. And I think what's fascinating about this book is that the visitor is is a woman and women are often in the position of the spectacle, not the spectator. And so this book sort of, for me, is a little bit subversive in trying to make a woman into a flaneur and think about how her identity can be constructed by observation. So I'm really excited to see how it ends, but so far it's been really good. Well, don't but, tell us how it yeah. ends. <laughs> the, the framework makes it sound so much like Rachel Cusk's recent work. Outline is very much the woman in the background um, and kind of everyone she encounters on a vacation somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and so it's uh, about the woman being the, the observer and kind of shaping what she's seeing. But Christina Garcia is such a different writer from Rachel Cusk, and Berlin is such a different place from Greece yeah. where uh, Outline is set. So I, I'm curious to read that one, too. Yeah. Now I kind of want to check out the Rachel Cusk novel because I'm I'm really I'm just really into this theme. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> John, how about you? Well, I finished The Portrait of a Lady, which I read pretty quickly given how big it is. Um, <laughs> Did and, you cry? Uh, um, Did I cry? I was deeply moved many times while reading the book. I don't think I ever literally cried, but it, it's an incredible story and it's very, uh, you know, it's just an epic reading experience. So it's going to be hard to follow it up. And Isabel Archer is just such a fascinating to, to think about why she does and doesn't do the things she does. Or, you know, you could just spend your life thinking about it. In a way, the the, the great classics are the hardest books to talk about because mm-hmm. it's like, well, it was really good. Yeah. <laughs> it turns <laughs> out People everyone should else know was about right. Book. It's, <laughs> it's 600 pages of incredible human psychology yeah. and plot development. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to you say. Well it up done, with James. John Banville's <laughs> sequel. Yeah, 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 I thought about that. I'm actually going to follow it up with a book I'll, I'll talk about next week, which is a book about Portrait of a Lady. But the thing that I did find so interesting about her briefly is that, you know, she's she's someone who obviously values her freedom and she has this great independent spirit. And yet, because of that, I think she wants to feel like she's driving everything in her life. And so she refuses these proposals from people almost because they're too, it's almost like their depth of affection and love for her feels like too much for her. It's like they're driving the car too much. And so she settles for this thing where she feels like she's making the decision. And yet it's flatter and, and worse for her. And then very quickly, I just, I followed that up with a very different book, which is a book from the 1930s that Parle reviewed recently in the, in the paper called Black No More by George Schuyler. And it's about a doctor who finds a way to make black people white very quickly. And it's obviously very satirical. It's very cynical and cutting about everybody on every side of the issue. And it reminds me in some ways because of that of Paul Beatty's The Sellout, Mm -hmm. which is a recent book that kind of has no sacred cows and is also very funny and cutting. So I'll finish that and and talk about that next time as well. Greg, what about you? 
I'm continuing my recent essays kick. You may remember a few weeks ago um, I mentioned I'd been reading Elizabeth Hardwick's essays. Mm -hmm. um, now I've moved on to Muriel Spark, her book The Informed Air, uh, which came out maybe four or five years ago from New Directions um, and was reissued again uh, this year um, in time for her centennial. I just swiped these off John's desk. <laughs> 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 and and with it, I'm kind of dipping in and out of a book that New Directions has also brought out for the centennial called A Good Comb, which is not essays. It's actually just like collected aphorisms and sayings. It's delightful. Mm. Um, I, I really like reading aphorisms, but it, it's kind of like listening to punk music. It's these little 30-second chunks and, the, you know, in and out and, you know, that's no narrative. Muriel Spark, unlike Elizabeth Hardwick, she's lucid and, and great on literature like Elizabeth Hardwick, but the tone is so completely different. There's, um, She's got this kind of avid curiosity and innate skepticism, and she's just always alert to absurdity. There's a real kind of comic effervescence to her. It's a, it's a habit of mind um, that informs her writing that is it, it, this kind of puckishness that maybe finds its closest match in somebody like Grace Paley. And um, she's very good on literature. She's very good on religion. She was born to a Jewish father and a Christian mother. Um, she converted to Catholicism in her 40s, and she writes kind of a, about the contradictions of that. But um, the I just wanted to read a quote actually about literature, not religion, from an essay called The Desegregation of Art. She says, literature of all the arts is the most penetrable into the human life of the world for the simple reason that words are our common currency. We don't instinctively, from morning to night, paint pictures to each other or play music to each other in order to communicate. We talk. We write to each other. So this is, a, you know, she's making the case for literature as the supreme art. That's mm. nice. On a beautiful. superficial note, I think if Isabel Archer is one of the great heroine names in literature, Muriel Spark is definitely one of the great writer <laughs> yeah. names. And, 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 <laughs> and, and it suits Spark her. is really, it suits her beautifully, yeah. yes. What about you, Pamela? So I'm reading a book uh, by a writer who was on the podcast a few weeks ago, Alexander Langlands, um, and his book is called Craft, um, an inquiry into the origins and true meaning of traditional crafts. And for me, this is like therapeutic reading. You know, mm -hmm. if I have like a bad day and it's slushy out and the internet is mean and I have too much to do and miss dinner. Um, not that any of that has ever happened to me. I go home and I read um, about, you know, haymaking and, and roof thatching. Last night, I was reading about both of those things as well as tanning, and I want to talk briefly about each. But I'll start with a quote from the book. This is after um, Alexander Langlands learns to thatch. And he writes, even taking this minor shortcut into account on the evening that the barn was finished, taking in the whole completed spectacle for the first time, an enormous pride welled up inside me at what I had helped to achieve. In so many ways, this roof had been a gateway into a new world for me. My life would never be the same. A new Alex emerged. Archaeology became so much more than just stuff on the ground. It became an exploration of what it was to be human, not only because we are makers, but because we are resourcers, gatherers, with an inveterate knowledge of the natural world around us. So one of you, I think John, asked on my way in here if I had sort of taken up crafting myself. And the answer is no. Um, <laughs> but I am vicariously enjoying this experience because it is true that when you read these accounts, these historical accounts about the development of particular crafts, you realize how intrinsic they are to the human story. And and there are all these little interesting factoids. So, and I'm going to quiz everyone. Who here knows what it means, like what the origin of going to seed is? No, no. No. 
All right. So neither did I. Uh, so don't feel <laughs> well, bad. It, I, I would venture a guess that it has to do with agriculture and that when something, a fruit or vegetable, ha- has outlived it, you know, you haven't har- harvested it in time and it starts to go to seed. It, you know, cilantro, for instance, you have to harvest very quickly oh, right. or it goes to seed. And uh, then you and got that's coriander. When the seeds, yes, a, a coriander, exactly. That's when the seeds start to um, present themselves and suddenly, you know, the flavor is all off. And it's also how you gather the seeds, you know, for the next harvest. Greg Coles officially knows more about agriculture than anyone else here. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You are, in fact, right. But I didn't know that. And he talks about that in the context of haymaking, which was pivotal to getting humans from being Mm hunter-gatherers to getting us to be an agricultural society because before that, everyone just had to, you know, wander around with the animals from grazing ground to grazing ground. And it wasn't until you could make hay that you could have animals either winter or whatever was the off-season. You could feed them so that you could keep them in one place and you could stay in one place. And in with haymaking, it turns out to be a real craft and almost an art. Right now, I'm on the tanning chapter. And it's really remarkable just how disgusting <laughs> the process of tanning leather is. Because when you think about it, it's like you're taking flesh <laughs> and you're turning it into something that is water resistant and fairly permanent. And so the process by which you get all of the stuff that might have it biodegrade out of there, it (laughs) turns out to be like a pretty funky uh, (laughs) uh, sort of process, I guess. So it used to be that you would take these skins and you might slather them first with fat and brains. Later on, this became butter and egg. Um, but there are there are steps in the <laughs> We're process. That, <laughs> <laughs> there are steps in the process where you are using manure, you're using urine, you're using bird droppings, and you're rubbing it into this, um, this and soaking horrific. it. What kind of shoes do you have on, Lovia? Leather boots. And there you go. <laughs> and if it weren't for this vastly disgusting process, which is now, you know, mechanized and, and, and all chemical, you wouldn't have those shoes on. But it, it is important to note that if something is a vegetable tanned leather mm-hmm. product, it's more organic than the chemical. So it, the, it uh, sounds like the Ben McIntyre story you were reading where they had to make the corpse <laughs> look, you know, preserved. I'm feeling more comfortable as an office person every second. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, all right, back to the office. Back then. to our desk. <laughs> right. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Thanks, guys. Pamela. Thank you. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Inside the New York Times Book Review is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media. Thanks for listening. For the New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Pamela Paul.